Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of DC Power Hour and joined here again by the Battery Blarney duo, George and Alan, and our good friend of the show, Pete DeMar. So looking forward to getting started today. We're going to talk about stationary battery applications across multiple industries and we're going to kind of talk about how that has, has evolved over time and the current state of the different industries and different applications and then We'll see where it takes us, where we where we headed from here. So good morning, George. You want to get us started? Yeah, why not? We came up with this subject simply because there are three areas that uh, dominate a successful country at the present moment, and they're all tied to communications, power, and uh, data processing. They all rely very much on stationary batteries in order to maintain the, uh, the service in the event of power outages. And yet they all approach it from a different way, which, if you think about it, isn't necessarily the most logical thing, but it's always it's just been the way it has been. So what I'd like to do is talk have myself and my colleagues here to talk a little bit about the different approaches that we have seen and what's what the way it's currently structured, and uh, look at the potential or, or, or why why do we have to keep doing it this way eventually? Maybe maybe we have some different ideas. As you said, David, let's just uh, let's see how the conversation progresses. I'll start off with it, probably the area I know best, to be honest, and that's telecommunications, because that's what I've been involved in for a good part of my career. And uh, in telecommunications, it's typically uh, 48 volts, and the positive post of the battery is always grounded. Uh, now, the reason for that, what we are told, was always about the problems with corrosion in the underground cables. That if you grounded the positive side of the battery, you had less corrosion. That's, put it this way, that's what I was taught, and that's what I still preach. But the point is that today, very little of our communications is actually in copper underground, although there is still a lot of it around, but most of it is now on fibre optics. Um do we still need it grounded? Is there another reason why we need it grounded? I don't know. But it, when you start looking at how communications is now integrated into the other parts of it, in other words, data centers and the utilities in order for the smart grid, that's when you start looking and thinking, why do I have to have two power systems in a substation, for instance, one to do the communications, one to do, one to manage the actual power the substation itself. Couldn't it be two? Couldn't it be one? Or is there a reason why we have a problem with this one? Those are the things I think I'd like to discuss this morning. You have any thoughts on that one, Alan? Because you've also been in communications for most of your time. Yeah, I just want to add on to your uh, reason for the positive post being grounded. And you are right, it was to do with galvanic protection. But there was another reason. Back Way back in the day, Western Electric days, they found out that by grinding the positive post, somehow or other, 
they cut back a little bit on noise. Since you started off with telecommunications, George, it's a very good starting point because back in the day, they were the largest users of stationary batteries. But along came the cellular radio, and that brought a whole new aspect to it because that worked off 24 volts. And the reason being that it evolved from the, the trucking industry, the mobile radios and the trucks, and they had a negatively grounded 24-volt battery. So here you have, as you well know, you have cell sites, George, and it's got 24-volt battery negatively grounded. It could have a 48-volt battery positively grounded. And then they brought microwave in, and some of that was 90 volts. But, so there was a lot of DC to DC converters at play. But you're right in how that kind of evolved and why do we have so many different topologies. Just to do a bring in our guest here, Pete DeMar. Pete's a, Pete and I are old friends. We're both curmudgeons, you would probably say. We're, Pete's not uh, backward and coming forward with his views, and I, I appreciate that. So Pete's also extremely knowledgeable. I look up to him on occasions for information, and he's a member of the BATCON Battery Hall of Fame. So good morning, Pete. Good morning. I really don't know what else I can add to your and George's statements about the telecom application. We've done a little bit of it. It's not our primary source. Our primary source is uh, typically the utility industry, even though we do work in the UPS industry and the telecom. But I really can't add anything to what you both just said about the telecom side of it. We are going to go into why the telecom battery designs are different than the, the utility or the UPS? Yeah, that was the idea. Just Why do they have to be different? Do they need to be different? Where are we going with this? I, I suppose I'm, you know, as, you, as Alan said, we're all, all pretty old now, and um, change is not the thing that we always like. But I have this, when I'm doing my teaching, I keep talking to people about, the whole thing about COVID is that people think it's all going to go back to normal. Well, I've got news for them. After events like COVID, 9-11, any of these things that have happened during our lifetime, uh, things are never the same afterwards. You have to accept this change can happen. So we've got changes within the industries to do with COVID, but we also have this, this climate change and whether, you know, whether we believe in climate change or anything else. And I understand the people that say, well, this has happened before. But it's very true. It has happened before. But it's now happening and we have a different form of infrastructure. We are totally dependent on electricity, communications, and data centers. You lose any yeah. one of them and half the world stops, it appears. We also have, you know, the problems we haven't seen over in Russia, they you don't. Know, and, and, and Ukraine, the fact that Russia is taking out their electrical infrastructure and that's going to paralyze the country. Is this something we have to think about or should we be thinking yeah. about? Yeah. Or should there be better ways to back up all the stuff? That's, well, that was what I wanted well, to, to, to just move us in that direction a little bit. Well, well, we'll talk about that and certainly bring Pete in when we're talking about utilities, uh, power systems. Pete's somewhat of an expert in that, but 
as, as I was going to say, not only are the batteries affected or industry specific, but when you think of it, the original battery chargers were designed not just to charge a battery, but they were also designed in such a way that they were well filtered and well regulated. And moving into some of the other industries, particularly UPS industry, that didn't follow through. We had a lot of problems with chargers because of high ripple content and some lack of regulation and an attempt to make things you know, smaller, lighter, cheaper. And also some t- the utility industry brought another feature from the chargers with it as well. And that's because the batteries were ungrounded. So they introduced ground fault detection into the, into the chargers. So there was a lot of change there. And uh, probably in order of things happening, probably started mainly telecom, then utility, and then much, much later, UPSs. So, Pete, would you think there's anything unique to the utility industry with respect to batteries? I know, I know we have different types of loads, so maybe you can talk something about that. One, one thing I remember when I began, I think still applies, is the total mass of your lead generally determines your overall amp hour capacity and the square inch or square surface of the positive plates determines your short rate application. And as you know, like a telecom, let's say a thousand amp hour battery that happened to use 100 amp plates. Well, you got 10 positives. Let's say the plates are two tenths of an inch thick, just for an example. And it will give you that thousand amp hour over eight hours. That same battery will give you about half of that. If you want for a real high application, you could go to a 41 plate battery and go to a 10 inch thick plate. You still got the same amount of lead, you just have higher surface area. And as you said, it really started with, with a telecom application. So they're thick plate batteries, at least in my experience. I know that some you some manufacturers have tried to put some thinner plate batteries, you know, in telecom applications, but with the same mass. Now, if you go over to a utility, you've got two duty cycles. You got the first one, which is often the inrush in a power plant to protect the turning gear, the lube oil pumps, those instantaneous loads that are over in seconds. Then it has different varying loads out through. In a substation, same type of thing. You have tripping loads in the very beginning, so you can have a high inrush and then a lower continuous draw, and you got to have reclosure at the end. And the UPS industry, it's quite often the batteries are sized for 15 minutes, so they have very thin plates, often different grid designs, but the power comes out quickly. To the utility side is that we're seeing is used to just be for those applications. Well, now they're putting monitoring control. So telecom loads are going on their batteries. Years ago, as you mentioned, Alan, they were unfiltered chargers in the utility industry. Now, almost everything we see going in is actually a filtered battery eliminator charger. So they're merging two applications, the the communications application onto the control. I think how many plates, surface area, and application. Well, Pete, it's interesting you 
you should say about the different plate designs, which is very true, which reminds me when I work for a company that we brought a lot of batteries in from the Far East. And the first thing we used to do, we, we had a test lab. Uh, first thing we used to do is weigh the battery. That told us how much lead was in it. Mm-hmm. So we could look at the, the specification for the battery and weigh the battery and say, there's no way. That's even before we put a load test on it. So, but they did change the plate structures and they did change, uh, you know, moving from telecom, particularly to UPS, they, uh, they did change the plate, they, the grid designs, as you know, Pete, you know, they, they, and they did, they did change the charges. Well, charges were built into the UPS, but uh, you mentioned uh, the battery eliminator. Well, just to clarify for people who might not know, Battery, a battery eliminator is actually a charger, but oh, yes. it's, 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 it's designed to operate without a battery connected to it. So, you know, it would regulate. And in the old days, the, the, with the going back to telecom, the battery they was designed, the charger was designed, actually the charger was designed to use the battery as a filter. And they had a standard four-hour uh, rate battery. So, you know, the, the modern chargers are designed so that they don't have that battery filtering effect in them, particularly in, in utility. But the, the other thing is that it happened just a brief bit of history is the additives they brought into add to the lead in, in the positive places, you know, as a, Basically, it's a hardener. First one was antimony, and uh, worked great. There was only one problem: that towards the end of the life, or mid to end of life, it required a lot of watering it's because of the evolution, the evolving hydrogen and oxygen from the battery. But so the utility companies didn't really like that because it was labor intensive. But so they went to Bell Labs and said, okay, can we look at something else here? So they come up with uh, that calcium, with calcium as an additive, and that brought a whole new new set of problems. As you well know, Pete and George, you know, that's what, uh, what we call plate growth and actually uh, accelerated, in my mind, accelerated the, the death of the battery. From day one, you know, they they started corroding, particularly in overcharging. So there's one battery. I'd just like to bring it in before we, I forget. We might talk about it. Uh, it's NICADs. You know, we talked about lead-acid batteries up to now. So NICADs weren't really popular in telecom industry because, A, they were expensive, and, B, you know, the number of cells involved to make up a standard 48-volt battery. You had to have 37 cells instead of 24. But anyway, utilities love NICADs. And let me talk a little bit about that, Pete. Well, why did I, I know the reason, but I'm asking you hypothetically, why did they like NICADs? Why did they like NICADs? Yes. I think the primary thing was the cold weather applications, you know, less reduction over a lead acid battery. They used quite a few of them, but out of, I would just, this is a wag, wild guess, 
what do we got? 55, 60,000 substations in the U.S. based on the, the internet, somewhere in that number. I'd, I would fathom that, or guess, that probably 75% or 80% of them are lead acid. And you, you made a real good point about the lead acid, the antimony, uh, as they get towards end of life, their water, incre- their current requirement increases substantially. And that's why back in the 40s, Bellinum developed the calcium grid. Well, what you didn't mention at the same time was over in Europe, they were having the exact same issues. They had antimony batteries also, and they developed the lead selenium, which is really just a real low antimony battery. And if you look on the IEEE 1635 gassing calculator, it shows that a, a, a calcium, an antimony battery, you know, the, the float current doubles over life. Pretty much the same thing occurs with a lead selenium, whereas a lead calcium, the current stays about the same. I think you mentioned the drawbacks to lead calcium is they don't cycle as well. I think even for the nuclear applications, are only sized for maybe 50 discharges over the whole lifetime, whereas the lead antimony is selenium, but goes well over a thousand. On that subject, about they were concerned about having to add water. I think even today, having the manpower or the labor to maintain batteries in the utilities become even more important than it previously was. They don't have excess people, and that's where monitoring and any device that can make the maintenance on the battery be reduced, if that's the proper word, is a plus. And I see that's where the the industry is going to go. We're not getting younger. And as I, as, as you and George and uh, Ed Rafter discussed in ECM article, where do you get technicians? Where does anybody get technicians? They're not out there, and that's including utilities. I know a lot of utilities are just dying trying to find people to do maintenance. So I, 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 I think I, over my life I've changed my thoughts about monitoring, and the monitors have gotten a lot better through the years. And I think they're a labor saver just as with the watering recombination vents. They, they cut down on that, that, that labor, and they cut down on the hydrogen release. That's it. I know George is going to straining at oh. the bit here to jump in on this, but I just want to sure. mention one thing further, Pete, about the difference between Europe and America with uh, low antimony or selenium cell. Mm-hmm. Europe also went with pure lead. Yes. Cells. Yep. And they were a great battery. The only problem people found with plantate is you didn't degrade the same way as lead calcium or lead selenium. So yep. you'd be going 20 years and the battery looks great, and then one day later the battery fails. Because mm. you didn't you didn't get that trending that you do with uh, with you know lead calcium or lead selenium. So George. I, the, the only reason I was trying to jump at it was that I, I wanted to, uh, I was going to push Pete to talk about the, the recombination because I know he's done a lot of work on that over the last couple of years. And um, I think it's I think it's a very important part. Most people don't understand it. But when you have companies that are short-staffed, especially on the utility side, especially in some of the places where they are subjected to uh, 
bad weather, the, the people then talk about, well, let's go to VRLA cells for the utilities because we don't have the labour to do the work. But the VRL says that it's an absolutely total wrong thing to have in a utility application where it can be abused because of weather conditions. You know, And I think maybe they, we need to be looking much stronger at the recombination fence that you, you've been working on, Pete. You want to comment on that? Yes. Uh, and actually, I didn't get involved in recombination vents for vented batteries about two and a half, three years ago when I just started thinking about them. I mean, as you know, Thomas Edison had one. The modern, what I call the modern design, was vented here in the States by, uh, I can't think of his name now, back in the 40s. But they really came into vogue when uh, I'm pretty sure it was Hopica introduced their first recombination vent in 1971. They sold it only with their batteries. And the whole goal was to cut down on the watering, which is everybody. There's only like five major manufacturers in the whole world, three in Europe and two here in the States. And uh, they all do the same thing. They take that hydrogen oxygen and convert it back into water. They all use pretty much the same materials, but differently, just like making, making a battery. But, and they all operate in the 90% above, maybe down to 85% efficiency. And what that means from a safety standpoint first, 90% of the ga- hydrogen gas that would normally be released into the environment, the room, wherever, is recombined back into water, which goes back down in the cell. That The paper that I did at BatCon last year, we tested by four, four different manufacturers. I'm <coughs> sorry for that paper. And we test them very high rate. It, like we used 2.345 volts per cell. And it was antimony cells. And our whole goal was to see how fast we could compare the water loss in cells that had recombiners and cells that didn't. And I think that study came out to about, you would re, we refilled the, a reference cell, the one that just had a regular flame rest in it, compared to the recombiners of 17 times. I think, and I also think that accelerated testing is misleading. So I would, I'm comfortable saying that if anybody had a battery, and let's say you had to add water to it once a year. You could put a recombiner in, fill it to the high line, put a recombiner in, and go eight to ten years without ever having to add water. As you know, there are some model batteries that you have to add water to maintain them every six months. So basically, you would go from having to have somebody spend that time to add water, and it really doesn't matter whose recombiner it is. In my opinion, there's there's some there's some things in recombiners I think have some negative effects on any cells that have sample tubes, but otherwise they all do the same thing. And they extend the period of time when you don't have to add water to the cells for a utility or for anybody. If you have to send somebody out to a, let's say a substation to check on the battery, well, and let's just say they have to add water and it took them a half hour to add water. Well, if you don't have to add that water, you really benefited the company by one hour because you saved that half hour that they don't have to do that. And that same person can use that half hour for something else. 
So you get an hour's worth of product improvement, let's call it. And I realize that's a stretch, but if you, or if you don't have to go out there and check on the battery. I know one oil company in, in up on the North Slope, Alaska, they hadn't had two strings of batteries that, and their normal battery PMs was six months. These two strings, they haven't had water. They had changed their visit to three months because they would go from the high line to the low line within that six month period. We're doing some testing with up there with a particular recombiner to see if we can mix. But the other point here is, is that you, you hit on it, is the way that the, the batteries themselves are designed. If we look at the European OP style batteries, they have a lot more headroom in them and the ability to, to hold a lot more electrolyte. Whereas uh, in the American uh, manufacturer style, and obviously this is what people are used to, in order to try and make them smaller and smaller, the amount of headroom within those cells is becoming less and less. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things I talk about is please don't fill them to the top because uh, if you get an equalized charge or something like that happens, you are going to be uh, pushing the electrolyte out through the flame arrester. And then you're going to have to go and spend a weekend cleaning all the flame arresters because, you know, they're blocked with uh, acid residue. And, uh, you know, but, but it's difficult to say that to somebody that is, as you said, having to go back to the site multiple times just to keep it topped up. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, you know, I, I suppose what I'm looking at there, there's, a, there's another product that maybe that's something we should be looking at as part of the design process we're talking about, you know, deciding which battery to select, which battery to use. And I know that a lot of the American manufacturers now are also, because they're global, are actually bringing in the OP size side batteries, both uh, VRLA and vented, and selling them. So, you know, is this is this part of the change that's taking place? Because then we start looking at different racks. One of the things I just want to ask, Pete, I heard a figure one time that said uh, a 20% loss in water in a battery equated to 50% reduction in capacity. I don't think that as long as you're electrolyte levels are high and low line, you're really not going to have a reduction. I've never never seen that or heard that. So, sorry, in VRLA batteries, Peter. Oh, okay. We, well, you said, I, well, I would agree with that in VRLA because primarily uh, with AGM uh, particularly is because you basically are drying out your mat, which is what I call the sponge between the plates, and you no longer have contact between the plates. That's why the, the IOVR process and the, you know, the IEEE special recovery process functions. All that does is you basically are injecting water back into the cell. And as you know, when the water goes out from a cell, the electrolyte density goes up, you change your charging needs. So by putting, by resaturating your mat to come back to where it was in the design, I could agree with that, that a 50% reduction, or that's not un, unheard of in a VRLA battery. It, it, it was probably somebody uh, like myself who tends to make up statistics. And, you know, you get that statistic published, Pete, and as you know, uh, people buy it. People buy it. And it, 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 there's a couple out there I can lay claim to, but we won't go there at the moment. But anyway, uh, all this process we're talking about, you know, 
we mentioned monitoring. George mentioned monitoring. Monitoring itself has evolved as well, George. Uh, oh, yes. Maybe you can walk that through that a little bit and then talk about the necessities for monitoring. Well, the, the, the necessity for monitoring really comes into this lack of experienced people out there to go out to the site. You know, we, we're doing the training we do now is that we have clients that get trained by us whereby the, uh, the technicians collect the data and they send it back to a subject matter expert in headquarters to analyse the only trouble is the subject matter expert never comes and does a visual inspection of the battery. And I don't you know, I think that the two gentlemen I'm on, on with at the present moment would say that that's one of the most key parts of a battery maintenance program is that visual inspection. Because, you know, that's, that's when we see the other things that are going wrong that may not be indicated by monitoring static or active parameters. A lot of the problem I from my perception is is that and where we're going now where we're growing now is the ability to start looking at it instead of setting very specific limits which may not be applicable in that industry or anything else we should be looking at it from more of a risk factor based on the amount of discrepancies there are within the parameters that are being measured uh, you know, one of the things I've done is the is show how much they're affected by the other parameters: temperature, you know, rate of discharge, voltage, all that stuff. Is how much they all interact. And people at the end of it look at me and say, "I didn't know that." And then you say, "No, because that's you know, as a, as an individual, if you don't understand this in the correct depth, you're trying to look and set alarms for individual parameters." But it's actually the reaction between them. And this is where modern monitors are going. They will eventually get to the point where we can use some of the artificial intelligence techniques that are being learned and being exposed to do some of that analysis for us. Because that, that I think, has is, is been the problem with a lot of the early battery monitors. It was They were simply data collectors, and it was up to the user to do the analysis. And... We, we, well, in many cases, we've lost it. those people that could do that analysis. Would you agree with that, Pete? Oh, <laughs> a thousand percent, at least. I mean, at least a thousand percent. It, it, when you, particularly when you're talking with vented batteries, by looking inside, you can see see things, but you got to look, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can look at the color of the plates. You look for uh, sulfation, sedimentation. You can see buses breaking down inside. When I go out and work with people, I one of the things I emphasize is to look for nodular corrosion, where the positive post seal is failing internally. Anybody can see a post seal failure when the cover starts cracking, but if you can find that, and you can years before, by looking right underneath the cover, but I have a contract with a, a large generation company that has worldwide plants, and I've been for the last two years, I've been harping on them to report more on what they visually see. Everybody says, well, I follow this stand, whatever. Well, they aren't. But I just, uh, yesterday, no, no, Tuesday, reviewed reports from a, a power plant down in Chile where uh, we had pointed out a few years ago that they had the beginning of the nodular corrosion. It wasn't visible externally but it was internally and the post was growing and cracking the 
the plastic post seal cover. And one picture I saw in the report, and I asked for the actual picture, is it shows that we're really starting to destroy where just where it goes up to the cover. I got involved in that for this company a few years ago. They had a battery trip that the battery had passed a capacity test two years prior to it, but they tested it at like a three-hour rate. The unit tripped and they wiped the bearings. And uh, Jim McDowell helped me. I couldn't understand why the cell didn't explode. I ended up myself going down there and doing a root cause analysis. And the positive post, and this was a small system, and they only lost like under 20 million, but to them they call it small. I thought that was big. The post had actually separated inside but below the cover, burnt right apart, and it didn't explode. And I asked Jim, I said, that doesn't make sense. His answer was so simple and so accurate. If you're if the gas mixture isn't right, it won't explode. You're gonna have an, an arc there. We ended up going deeper and found a number number of systems. And that's what why that company brought me in and brought us you know, around around the nation. But somebody visually looking inside and a monitor can't do that. Nope. And no, nope. and also, as you said, a subject matter expert. I mean, if he, if he can't go look at it at the moment, you cannot make a, a good decision. No, the, the, the picture tells you everything. Yep. So, uh, as I say, I think we can, we can move monitoring forward using a bit of artificial intelligence, but it's, it's going to be look at, rather than looking at individuals and setting specific limits, it's going to be looking much more at the relationships between the parameters and how they're changing. You know, I, uh, what I try to explain to people is if I'm looking at uh, 60 cells and I have one cell there that has got a totally set of different r- r- responses to, say, temperature than any of the other cells in the, in, in, the, in the string, then I have a problem with that cell because the electrochemical reaction is not the same. It's changed uh, based on the temperature change. So that cell is a potential risk. You know, you have to decide, is that risk important? You know, will it fail? And the only way we'll we'll learn that is over many years of data collection to start recognizing those patterns. But again, now we've got a problem because of the cybersecurity. Nobody wants to let the data out. You know, but we need that if you want to improve the reliability, we need the data. And I, Alan, you know, you 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 you've been involved in fourteen ninety one since the very beginning. So, um, where do you think it's going? With respect to monitoring, uh, well, as you know, fourteen ninety one tells you what parameters can be monitored, but it doesn't tell you how to monitor them or anything else. But, but one of the interesting things. Uh, coming out of a BATCON conference was there, there was a panel session uh, talking about monitoring and the members of the panel were asked if you could only me- measure two or three things in a battery, what would it be? Well, our old friend, impedance, resistance, conductance never even hit the top three. It's what came out on top and it's almost unanimous was uh, temperature and charge current. Because basically, if the temperature was stable and the charge current increased, you had a problem. 
if the charge current increased, but at the same time the temperature increased, you didn't much have a problem, but it was a warning sign. So, you know, that, that that's a very simple example of the relation of two parameters and tell you a lot. But things have evolved since then. And that the thing I noticed about battery monitoring now is that, as you said, it's getting more sophisticated. But it, it has to be, in, in my mind, it has to be something where you have, we used to bombard people with, when we monitored their battery, did even a load test and things like that, all these facts and figures. Well, the end user wasn't interested. He just wanted to know, is my battery okay or isn't it? You know, just yes or no. So I think a monitor is going to have to come up with that kind of information, not just uh, there's a slight increase in ohmic resistance or there's this, that, and the other. It just has to come up with something that says go or no go. Can I jump in on that a little sure. bit? I think I remember that discussion, and I've always felt that there's really, if you're going to do regular inspections of some sort, a monitor that would alert you to just four four things, and you had three of them right there. One is the overall voltage. Why was that important? Hey, my charger's still working, right? So that alerts you to a charger failure. The second is the ambient temperature, and I'm not sure in the right order here. The third is just any one cell temperature and the float current or the current, float current or discharge current. And as you said, Alan, that if the if the temp the ambient temperature hasn't changed and the voltage hasn't changed and your float current starts to increase, followed by a temperature differential where the cell or block that you're monitoring is higher than the ambient. That's your warning. That is telling you that you have an issue going on inside that battery that's leading you towards thermal walk away or runaway. And the same applies with a vented battery. Uh, there's not as many thermal runaways, but we've investigated three and uh, they react exactly the same. They blow all the electrolyte out and deform. But I just wanted to reinforce what you're saying that. And all the other data is nice, but the minimum that would protect anybody from a sudden unknown failure would be those four items. I totally agree with you, um, Pete. And I would, by, what I was going to comment on Alan's comment about the, the, the during the panel discussion, the whole point about that panel discussion was you had a bunch of people on the panel that studied batteries, understood batteries, and were using basically the techniques that the old battery technicians from 20, 30 years ago used all the time to give us one of the most reliable communications networks in the world mm-hmm. under under my bell. And it, it's that analysis. But I'm, I'm actually going to blow my own horn here now that uh, my first paper I ever produced on battery monitoring was an intellect conference in Vancouver in 1994. And what I talked about there was the concept of the electronic battery technician measuring just the parameters that Pete talked about, but looking at them in a ratio basis to use the rate and, and, and measuring the ratio between them. And when that ratio started to change, you needed to go and check the battery, which of course is, is now is what basically artificial intelligence is going to be doing. So, uh, you know, some things just go around in circles. One of the things we didn't really cover 
I'm, I'm just thinking through the evolution of not only the different applications, but the battery technology itself is uh, we could bring another subset into it. We talked about telecom, data processing, and utilities. And the other one is that uh, CATV industry, cable television industry. And because of their uh, batteries were operated outside, much like in the old days, the railway companies used nickel cadmium batteries for, for the reason that Pete said, you know, be able to, to tolerate temperature extremes. But the cable TV industry had a lot of their uh, regeneration equipment outside, up on poles, so they needed to a battery there. So after a lot of research, they, they come up with the gelled electrolyte battery. Now, that, that was basically the same as the VRLA AGM battery, except that the electrolyte was, a gelling agent was added and the electrolyte was gelled. Uh, one of the reasons they were so successful was because of the fact that the electrolyte, the gelled electrolyte, was in contact with the, the case of the battery. It had, had better heat dissipation abilities than the regular AGM, whereas the electrolyte was not always in, it was absorbed in the plate and the separator, so it wasn't always in contact with the case. But here we have another technology that evolved, and uh, that's kind of, I think that's kind of gone by the wayside. I don't see too many applications for that anymore. So, so that's something else we have to talk about. But also with the, we're kind of ignoring the IT industry, the UPS industry. Now, when we started off in telecom, or, or you know, we had 48 volt batteries, uh, utility with 120 volt batteries. First UPSs I worked on, you worked on the same UPS, George. Uh, you know, a 5 kVA, sorry, probably 1.5 kVA UPS had a 48 volt battery, which we were able to use it as an inverter. You remember that, George? Yep, well, I remember. But uh, anyway, then the larger UPSs come out, so they required much, you know, that much larger batteries. So you ended up 480 volts was the highest they could go and go along with code. So then they come up with this crazy idea of having a center tapped 960 volt battery, which was essentially two 480 volt batteries. In my opinion, I created a lot of things, not only the safety aspects, but they put these batteries in cabinets. These were all mainly 12 volt uh, units, VRLA, and they put them in cabinets with little or no ventilation. So we saw a lot of failures, as you know, George, in those days, mainly because of mismanagement of heat flow, bad architecture. You know, we've seen a lot. So I don't see much change in that industry at the moment. Hopefully they're becoming more aware of, you know, the restrictions. And that's where monitoring comes into it. Because if you, if they have a monitor on it, or the user puts a monitor on it, then they can go back to the UPS company and say, listen, these batteries failed for no other reason than high temperature. We've seen a lot of failures in that. If you look at batteries on a tray, those middle batteries are subject to a higher temperature uh, than the others, and they tend to fail first. So there's a lot of applications for monitoring in the UPS field, but I don't see so much of it. So do you mm -hmm. any, guys have any comments on that? 
Well, I'll comment on that because, you know, as you know, I worked mainly in the UPS field for the last 10 years before I uh, retired on, on monitoring. But, yeah, the, the, the data centers are into it in a big way. But do they use it properly? No. They don't understand the concept of how to manage the batteries. They will, they will effectively wait until a cabinet is almost dead, and then they might change the whole cabinet of batteries out. Now, I have talked to some of the service companies, and they do what I would do if I was running the service side, is that when you start to, you know, you, you, you monitor each of the units in each of the cabinets, and you get to a point at which you have a number that are starting to be what I would refer to as potential points of failure. And those are the ones you want to change out. But what you might do is actually, depending on the number you've got to do, you might actually change out and put one brand new battery cabinet in and then use the good ones from the other one, you know, back and forward, move them around based on the information you've got so that you you keep them balanced. Because one of the biggest problems we have with the UPS when you're talking about 12, you know, 480 volts is, how do you keep the charging correct across them? Because if you have an individual unit that starts to fail or impacts the voltage across it because of an electrochemical change, that starts to impact all the rest. And the more you have in series, the more that becomes a problem. That's why some of the, the newer systems now are looking at uh, back to 48 volts, even for quite well, Again, they're not a huge capacity, but they're more distributed. This is that's what I'm saying is that are we really thinking the the new design parameters out correctly? Uh, you know, or are we are we going ahead with with ideas that haven't been thought out correctly? Yeah. One of the things you mentioned up front, George, was the you know how things were evolving and what do we need to do going down the line. I just like a brief comment from Pete with what changes he sees in the utility industry. And then maybe we can wrap this up by talking about what we should be doing. So Pete, have you any comments? I've got a thought that I've had since George first mentioned that this um, company in Korea is going back to lead acid. And for a long time now, all of the, you know, large, I'm going to say all, maybe not all, but all the large energy storage systems have been going lithium ion. And as George says, there's story after story after story after story. And like, you know, the lithium ion batteries do have extensive monitoring, but they still have these issues where they can fail and fail horribly. And I've often wondered why, and I don't know cost, why user that wanted to put in an energy storage system wouldn't go with a lead acid, except they do take up a lot more space, but Let's say you're putting an energy storage system on a field where space isn't so important. Why that industry wouldn't gravitate to go to using lead acid, especially considering the developments that have been made, the improvements in lead acid in valve regulated, which is probably what they go with uh, because you can get more capacity in a cube with a valve regulated than you can with a vented and have a monitor on it. Like, as you know, those lithium ion, everything's monitored. If you did the same with a lead acid, would I've wondered, would the economic return, whatever they need, 
be there. And I'm, I, I do want to contact you afterwards, George, to learn more about what you said about that particular company going back to lead acid. Well, as I said, it was uh, basically all I got was the, uh, a guy I used to work with all the time before I retired. I was out in Korea a number of times and they've got some major contracts out there, but they started all going to lithium because that was, because we got involved at one point because you, as you say, Pete, the, the lithium batteries have got these very complicated control systems on them, but they tend to only tell you when something has gone wrong and they shut it off or disconnect a module, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to get the information out of them that you could use for analysis in the way that we think about battery monitoring on a lead-acid battery doesn't exist. The, the, the manufacturer has this control system and they're most concerned about trying to stop it catching fire. Yes. So, but, but that then becomes a challenge. You, you take a unit out of service and, you know, all of a sudden this is a service problem for the, for the, for the company using it. So there the, the, are challenges there. You want to get some advice ahead of times. I, I, I will need to, call, I'm going to contact the gentleman again and talk to him more about it, but it was, you know, he called me at nine o'clock last night after two glasses of wine. So we, right. yeah, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, it, I don't know, we hadn't talked for about a year. So it was just, it was interesting, but I, I just found it. I thought my, my thought process was that Alan would like, like that because, you know, interested. But one of the things that I want, one of the reasons I talk about the, uh, the weather and things like that is I just don't think that a lot of our buildings and the, the way that the equipment is installed within it are actually substantial enough to stand up to some of these new weather conditions we've seen. When you see a bridge been taken out with wind and water, you know, what's that going to do to the standard substation if it gets hit? Things like that. It's just it's just a thought. I, I think we need to be rethinking it. And, and maybe we... Maybe some of the the young engineers need to be talking to some of the old guys like us, because a lot of this stuff just comes round and round and round again. You know, at one point, Alan and I worked for a a gentleman who was a former Marine Colonel pilot, probably the best boss we ever both worked for. But uh, last time I saw him, he, he said to me, "You know, he said, well, what's what's happening in the industry?" And I said to him, "Well, remember how." used to just send me out to fix something and tell me that it wasn't anything I hadn't seen before. It just had a different coat on. And he laughed and he said, so is it still the same? I said, the trouble is, Paul, I'm on the third time round for some of those things. And you've no doubt, Pete, been exactly the same position. Yep. Hey, hey, Pete, you, you mentioned the, you know, why don't they go with lead acid? Why are they going with lithium, lithium chemistries primarily? It's all to do with money. You know, yes. there's a lot of money been thrown at some of these yes. exotic chemistries. Nothing been thrown at lead acid. Right. And uh, it's a struggle for the ma- manufacturers to make people realize that, you know, I keep saying lead is not dead. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not glamorous. The, the investment money is not there. I just heard yesterday that the state of Maryland is, oh, investing, gone so much money onto, you know, lithium batteries. So, you know, that investment money's not there for lead, but lead is not dead. And if I was, if I was on a heart lung machine, which I probably should be, but I'd want a lead acid battery as backup. Yeah. Of course, I certainly wouldn't want a lithium battery. 
Right. No way. And one thing that the lithium has grown so much that the IEEE was at 1635 slash ASHRAE document was just rewritten like six years before it needed to be. And because of the influx of lithium ion in the energy storage industry, and there's a, it's been a, it was approved last month. It will be available for purchase anytime from the IEEE. But in there, even though they probably dedicated, they, they added a third to it to cover lithium. They also finally included that information on recombination vents. It was never in there before. It has been in Europe, in your standard over there, but here it was never in there. And their very first, de the definition is, they recombine, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase, these devices recombine most of the hydrogen oxygen back into water. There's like four mentions in and then way in the back in section seven something, it makes a statement that recombination vents substantially reduce maintenance requirements. So then I'll get off that horse now. No, I, 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 I one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up, people, is I think it's a very valuable one because it's, uh, you know, my concern is that with the lack of people, you're going to see more people trying to use VLA batteries in basically in installations that they are not designed for. Correct. And definitely will not operate under correctly. So, you know, it's uh, people just, people need to start understanding. Comes back to our article in ECNM. We, we lack the technicians and the knowledge. Alan, last word. Uh, I always have the last word, you know that. But uh, anyways, no, uh, like a couple of previous podcasts, you know, we could probably talk all day and, and maybe we need to come back and bring Pete on again and talk about some of the things that we think should be happening. Not are happening, but that should be happening with respect to cybersecurity, maybe some different battery designs, maybe some infrastructure changes like distributed architectures. We didn't talk about that. You know, it's becoming very common. So that's my last word. Yeah, that sounds great. Not a lack of topics to dive into here. So thanks again, Pete, for joining us. And as always, Alan and George, I, I know I learned a lot today just uh, listening to you guys, as I always do. And Pete, we'll have to put a link on our on our website for our podcast and where people can maybe learn more about the recombination vents that, uh, that you're working on. And uh, I, I find that pretty fascinating as well. So Thanks again, guys. Another great episode of the DC Power Hour. And, and like you said, Alan and, and George will be back and Pete will, will get you back on here and talk about some more of these topics. So thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.